0: Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. I'm in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 this morning. But here this morning, you don't have a Bible. Just slip up your hand. We would like to get you the Bible. Do we have Bibles out? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If you need a Bible, slip up your hand. You're gonna need that text in front of you. If you're new to Grace Athens, it's pretty simple. We just open the Word and we see what it says. I don't have a, a TED talk for you. I don't even have a good message. I just have the Bible, so you're going to need that, uh, or you're going to leave pretty uh, unsatisfied. So we're going to get back in our study through the gospel according to Mark this morning. Um, But we've taken the last two weeks to discuss what does the Bible say about church giving and lifestyle. For two weeks, we really focused in on that. And I think we drew out of the text some really clear and compelling conclusions and those conclusions regarding every believer's responsibility to tithe to the Lord's church. That's what we saw. And I just want to put a final punctuation on that study by quoting Jesus' brother and the great bishop of the early church in Jerusalem, which is James. He wrote a, he wrote a letter, it's in the latter half of the New Testament. And he has this one line that I think really accentuates what I want to end with regarding church giving and lifestyle. And it's this. Let us be both hearers and doers of the word. Not just hear it on a Sunday, but put it in action and do it. And I believe that as a community, we will. We've already seen signs that we're starting to do that. And the reality is no one else is going to do it for you. When he says, be a hearer and doer of the word, it's you are the agent of the doing. And so I just want to end by saying, let's do that. And every month at the end of the month, Um, We'll continue to do what we do and update where are we on our church giving. Are we obeying the Lord in that command? Because that is what fuels the ministry to go forward and not only reach our own people, but reach the community that surrounds us. I I was on the phone just this past Friday with um, the chairman of our elder board. And we were talking about the future and what God might do and how God might grow this um, this church. And I just I can't wait to see what God is going to do through this body of believers in the decades to come. We're small. We're in a cafeteria. We made it through COVID, right? On the outside looking in, oh gosh, okay, well, it's different now post-COVID, but there is a fire. There is a belief. There is a conviction, I think, in this room with this fellowship of people that is rare. And I think that's why you're here. And so let's all be a part of that work as God expands our boundaries boundaries and our borders over the decades to come. Amen? Amen? All right, let's get into today's passage. So we're going to pick up chapter 11. Let's pick up in verse 7. So this is where we left off. Gosh, it must have been a month ago. Which, I'm like a fish out of water if we're not going passage by passage. So I'm happy to get back. I just start feeling uncomfortable. Here we go. Chapter 11, verse 7. Get the scene here. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy, spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to bethany with the 12 let's stop there so remember from a few weeks back that here in chapter 11 Jesus has led what really was a protest march into the capital which is jerusalem the ruling authorities are on high alert because this would be messiah is coming to town he's got this guerrilla army like of people this big campaign that was out in the country now coming to the capital and they're nervous and Jesus they think he's planning an insurrection against the Roman authorities or uh, King Herod and so the first place that a would-be Messiah would go as he leads this march into Jerusalem and they're just crying out these chants if you've been to a protest it's kind of the same thing over and over and they're saying Hosanna Hosanna right and as they come in what the Messiah would do is go to the temple That's the center of Israel's life. That's the seat of power is at the temple. And he goes there into the center of the city. This is where you would launch a messianic campaign. Now, to get our heads around the significance of the Jerusalem temple for this society group, I want to do a bit of a thought experiment to kind of get us there, back in time. There's this brilliant um, New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. Uh, and he's going to help us do that. If we could bring that quote to the screen. So listen to what he says. What is the largest, most important building in your country? The one with the most historic meanings and associations. The one where famous people come, either to work or to visit. The one that stands for and symbolizes the very center and meaning of your country, its life, its rulers, and its people. Now supposing you were convinced that this building was shortly to be devastated, say in an earthquake or by enemy action. And supposing you believed that this was God's judgment upon it because the rulers of your country were wicked beyond repair. And supposing you felt obliged to tell people, to warn them solemnly, to give them a sign of what was to come, to urge them to change their ways while there was still time. End quote. Jesus knows as he visits the temple that God's judgment is coming to this city, to its temple. And so Jesus gives them a sign to let them know. It's a prophetic act that you see the Old Testament prophets doing all the time. It's a prophetic act symbolizing what was about to take place in just 30 years time. This is real history that would lead to such horrors in this capital of mass starvation and of cannibalism within its walls serious stuff real history 30 years away and so what is that symbolic sign that Jesus gives as a warning it's right here in the text pick up where we left off verse 12 it says on the following day when they came from Bethany he was hungry And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Skip down to verse 20. The story continues. It says, as they passed by in the morning, so this is the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And stop there. So what is the sign of Jerusalem's coming judgment? Jesus curses their fig tree, which had such meaning to the Israelite people. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree... It is used almost as a national symbol, almost as a national flag or tree or something of that nature for Israel. So cursing it and watching it wither and die, verse 20 says, from its roots, is loaded with symbolic meaning. It'd be similar to burning an American flag. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on them because they've been fruitless. Now, pause some of you might have wondered, well, it said it wasn't in season. How does that work? Why is Jesus cursing the tree? Well, he's obviously doing something more than just looking for something to eat. It's a symbolic act. But there's a whole side conversation we can have if you're that interested. I don't have time for, where I can explain what was happening there. All right, move on. He's pronouncing judgment because they're fruitless, for not rightly bearing the fruit of God for the world. In the very next scene. Which, by the way, this would have been Monday of of Jesus' Passion Week. This is his last week before his crucifixion, so it's Monday. The next scene is where Jesus drives out the merchants from the temple. And many people have mistaken what Jesus is doing here. They think, and I've even read commentaries that are mistaken. And other scholars that I think are accurate to what's happening. They think wrongly that he was just upset over all the business that was happening in the temple too too, too commercialized right that he was staging something like akin to like an occupy wall street you remember when that happened in protest over this over commercialization or the one percent this this it's here now in the temple it's affecting our religion but if you really get into what's happening and jesus motive nothing could be further from the truth if you think that then you're really missing what mark's Mark's point here. Mark is making clear by recording this incident with the fig tree that Jesus doesn't simply think that the temple needs to be cleaned up a bit. Rather, Jesus thinks it's come to an end. Really important to get that. He thinks it's finished. Israel's leaders were so fruitless and corrupt beyond repair. Have we seen any of that in our own country? that they needed to be fully uprooted by God's judgment, his sovereign judgment. And this is exactly what happened in history. 37 years after Jesus cursing and uprooting the fig tree, the temple itself gets uprooted. The history books know it as the Siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army. In 70 A.D., the future emperor Titus led multiple Roman legions into the Jerusalem capital. That April, three days before Passover, the Roman soldiers started besieging Jerusalem. Now I don't know how how much we know how a siege works, but essentially an army surrounds. Back then, uh, in antiquity, cities were built with all kinds of walls around them. And what you would do is an army would surround those city walls, not let anyone come out or in. Well, where does food come from? It's not inside the city walls, it's out in the agricultural plots. So they're cutting off their food and their water their supply lines. A siege on a city is nasty business. And this is what's happening. According to the historians, it took three weeks for the Roman army to break through the first two walls of the city But there was a stubborn uh, rebel standoff that prevented them from breaking the third and the thickest wall, right? And Josephus, he was a historian at the time. So we we have eyewitness account. Josephus, historian at the time, who said that during the siege, the city was ravaged by murder, extreme famine, and even got to the point of cannibalism. This is the Jewish people. They're supposed to be a light to the nations. Cannibalism is so far outside of their moral code. The Romans eventually broke through that third wall and they murdered hundreds of thousands of Jews. And do you know what else they did once they got through that third wall? They went straight for the seat of power, the temple. And they completely... Devastated and uprooted. All that was left was the Western Wall that you see Jewish people today praying at in Jerusalem. Those soldiers totally took it out. In Rome, after a successful campaign of this military campaign, they had a national day of celebration over the fall of Jerusalem. And they constructed um, two triumphal arches Uh, commemorating the victory and then they put on display all the treasures that they had looted from the jerusalem temple it was judgment and destruction jesus later in mark chapter 13 predicts it precisely i'll give you his words mark 13 it reads and as jesus came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He couldn't have been any more right. Come back in time. So I just went ahead in time to 70 A.D., Come back in time to Monday, Passion Week, 33 AD, where Jesus is in this passage. After symbolically cursing the fig tree in judgment, Jesus then enters the temple. Let's read what happens. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What is he doing? It seems like a fit of rage on the surface. I mean, right? Like if you want to, if you want to, if a, if a filmmaker, excuse me, if a filmmaker, which I'm not, wanted to like show a scene of rage, what do you, you overturn a table, right? This is what Jesus is doing. And he's driving people out. Some accounts say even with a cord of whip, uh, a cord of whip, cord of whips. How do you say that? I don't know. I don't handle this. Anyway, (laughs) he's driving them out. One of the things that Jesus is doing here by doing this is he's fulfilling a 400 year old prophecy. Mm -hmm. Y'all, God's word is just, if you don't see the fingerprints of the divine in it, you ain't looking at it. Jesus predicts total destruction 30 years in advance. Now I'm going to give you a 400-year-old prophecy that Jesus fulfills by going into the temple. Turn with me. In the Old Testament, 400 years prior to the book of Malachi. Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi. We're going to look at this together. Chapter 3, verse 1. God speaking directly, not mediated to the people through the prophet, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap what does Jesus do he comes in suddenly and he pronounces judgment he comes with fire he comes with a kind of cleansing like a soap John the Baptist goes before him. So Jesus is not just coming in and is angry for the sake of anger. He's fulfilling a 400-year-old prophecy. Okay, go back to Mark chapter 11. I want to dial into this scene because there's some details that are really important that are going to help you fully wrap your head around what's happening. Okay? I want to tell you more about the temple. We can bring that temple slide to the screen. There we go. So here's what you find at this temple. The first thing I want you to notice is there's four different sections to it. And the largest was called the court of the Gentiles. That's that giant courtyard on both sides of the temple right there. It's called the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jewish people from all nations could gather to worship israel's one true god okay it was massive those are 162 columns that go all around it and most scholars believe they were five stories high so this is like you know seventh wonder of the world kind of place the columns were so big at their base that it would take three grown men holding hands to fully surround it 162 of those This court of the Gentiles is where Jesus would have drove out the merchants. This is where verses 15 and 16 take place. Right there in that massive open air area. Okay? It would have caused a serious commotion, this passage. And it's likely from a practical standpoint that Jesus putting on this charade is what alerted the authorities and eventually got him uh, to be put on trial and then killed by the state. So this wasn't like, oh, Jesus is having a temper tantrum, you know. Having a rough day there, Lord? Yeah. No. <laughs> Far bigger than that. Would have stopped the whole industry of the sacrificial system. Not good. Okay? In this open-air court, what's there? Well, what's there is so much livestock. This is Passover. And so families would, 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 would sojourn all the way to Jerusalem. They would go to the court of the Gentiles. They had to have money. They went to the money changers to exchange to get the right currency. And then they would buy a lamb. You might also buy a bull or a goat out in the court of the Gentiles. You can imagine how loud it is there, how stinky it is there. And then you would take your family with, on a rope with this lamb, and you would lead them into the inner courts, eventually, to the altar. And this is where the animal would be sacrificed for the sins of your family that you had committed that entire year. And the, the the elder of the family would typically, in most sacrifices, lay their hands on the head of the lamb or the head of the bull as the priest would go through the ritual and prayer. And, and the sins of that family would be imparted, imputed onto that animal as a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness. Of their sins. Get this Josephus, the historian from that period, he recorded that during Passover in 66 AD, so after Jesus has ascended, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in that court of the Gentiles into the altar. We're talking about a massive religious industry here. One that God had ordered and ordained in the Old Testament law. And so the question is, why is Jesus so furious about it? Why is he acting out the role of Yahweh himself and pronouncing judgment on it? The text tells us. Look what he says after he does this Act of judgment. Verse 17. And Jesus was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard what he said and were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Two things are taking place here. The first has to do with, with, with what Jesus says in verse 17. It's the key into understanding his anger. It says, Jesus was teaching them and he said these words, Is it not written, what's he referring to? The Bible. My house shall be called a house of prayer For all the nations. What's he getting at? You see the sanctuary. Was separated from the court of the Gentiles by a wall. And that wall was called Sarek. Sarek. And written on that wall in big giant letters. Both in Greek and Latin and Aramaic. Was this. Do we have that as well? Was this right here. No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Big letters. You did not dare test the Jewish authorities. If you were a non-Jew, like most of us in this room, you heeded that warning. But you see, the Messiah... Jesus was popularly believed to be in their society's conception that that he would purge Jerusalem and the temple of all the Gentiles and of all the foreigners and all the so-called aliens. But Jesus doesn't do that here. In fact, watch this, Jesus does the exact opposite. He does not clear, if we go back to the temple slide, he does not clear the the, the court so I would say it this way, He does not clear the temple of Gentiles, rather, he clears the temple for the Gentiles. Why? Because it become overrun by all the livestock and all the money exchange. Because here's the deal. Before Caiaphas took power, that's the high priest that puts Jesus on trial, you know where all the livestock and the money exchange happened? It did not happen in the court of the Gentiles. It happened up on the Mount of Olives right next to the temple. So as you were walking into the temple on that highway, there was all these different, you know, tents and so on where you would buy that livestock for sacrifice and you would exchange your money. Caiaphas made the erroneous decision to bring all of that into the court of the Gentiles. The one place That me and you, if we lived back then, could worship Yahweh, the one true God. Why did Caiaphas do this? Because the Israelites at large did not care about the Gentiles. Because the Israelites ultimately did not embrace their vocation from God to what? To be a light to the nations. Rather, they thought they were the light of the nations. And no one else really mattered before God. Jesus says, oh no, you've missed it completely. And so Jesus stops the whole operation to restore the position of the Gentiles in the temple. So that they had a place to worship. He says, the tree of Israel's leaders is barren. It has no fruit. Curse it. God is bringing judgment. It's beyond repair. You're off the reservation. You're missing your entire purpose. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. He begins his argument with scripture. He says, is it not written? He's, he, he's giving Authority, Biblical authority behind his action. Jesus knew his Bible well. He quoted it often. Anyone that struggles with doubt in the scriptures. Like, what about that stuff that happens in the Old Testament? And What about this? And sometimes it feels exclusive and not inclusive enough. What do I do with the Bible? It's, it's hard at times. At the end of the day, I could give all kinds of really good proofs and evidences and arguments as to why I believe this is God's inspired word. The strongest one I have is this. Jesus believed that. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I follow the way he saw the world. And he saw this as God's authoritative divine word. He quotes it all the time. If we go to that um, passage in Isaiah, this is what he's quoting when he says this right here. He was like a a walking Bible. He's just always coming out of him. He's quoting Isaiah 56. Look what it says. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. There's this inclusive posture to all people. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So get what Jesus is doing here. Not only is Jesus saying in pretty dramatic fashion that what you're doing is wrong, Israelite leaders, but he's saying that what you're doing is finished. In just four days, the temple and its entire sacrificial system will become redundant. It will become no longer needed. Why? Remember what Jesus told his disciples a chapter earlier, verse 45. Jesus said that he would be giving his life as a ransom for many. Giving his life, dying, giving it, sacrificing it. This sounds like what the lambs and the bulls and the goats do on that altar. Just like the lambs and the goats had done for centuries... Millions of them to cover our sin. Okay? Fast forward in the week to Thursday. It's Monday. In this passage, let's go to Thursday. Thursday evening, Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples. It's famously called the Last Supper. Okay? They've already sacrificed. They already were at the temple. And maybe Jesus didn't take the lamb to the temple because... No one likes him at that moment after driving everything out. Maybe he sent John and Peter like, hey, go get this done. They have the lamb sacrificed on that altar. And then like every other Jewish family that night, Thursday night, Passover evening, they had that lamb that had been sacrificed. Its blood had been drained, cooked and ready to eat on the center of the table. Jesus then, it was, the custom was the elder male in the room, typically a grandfather, would then go through a whole ritual and recite a script that they would do every single Thursday once a year at Passover. Jesus goes totally off script at the sacred dinner. Jesus ignored it completely. And the disciples were good Jewish boys. They had done this every year since they were young. They would have noticed What's he saying? My grandfather didn't say it like that. Did yours? Jesus gets up. And instead of speaking on and pointing to the broken body and the spilled blood of the lamb at the center of the table, Jesus starts pointing to and speaking about his own body being broken and his own blood being spilled. You know the verse, Mark 14, 24. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Every other grandfather that I was talking about, the lamb's blood that had just been poured out the day before that covers our family's sins. But Jesus says, my blood of a new covenant is going to be poured out for many, for all. What's going on here? Stay with me. After millions of animals had been sacrificed over the centuries, Jesus, with one perfect sacrifice, will shut down the entire sacrificial system. He will fulfill it with his own sacrifice. He will do what the the blood of bulls and goats could never fully do, which is forgive all of humanity of all of its sin from eternity past to eternity future. I mean, stop. You heard one year, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed and slaughtered for the sins of an Israelite people, which were small in proportion to today's populations. Okay? Really consider all of the wretched and vile sin that our world can produce. Do you read the news? Do you read the news behind the news? So much has been exposed that's happening that is hard to even look at. All of the wickedness and vileness. It would seem like we don't just need one temple. We need thousands of temples for sin sacrifices. Yet Christ's one perfect sacrifice as the perfect lamb is sufficient to end it all, to cover all the sin saturated selfishness that pours out of my heart, your heart, and everyone that's ever existed. He washes the world clean before God. What a sacrifice! What a divine exchange. What a provision. What a mercy that God provides in the the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so it happened. On Friday of that week, Matthew 27 records it. Notice the temple. His sacrifice ending the temple. Not needed. Expired. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, it says. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Of course they were. This is the most important decisive event in all of history. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, that's the Roman soldier, and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. We're into deep and mysterious stuff this morning. As the gospel of John records Jesus' last words, they were this. It is finished. And the temple curtain and the Holy of Holies. Can we go back to the temple? The temple curtain inside the holy place, the holy of holies the innermost court where the shekinah glory of god was said to dwell was ripped from top to bottom now the court of the gentiles is irrelevant now all nations could have access to the mercy of god because jesus died for the sins of the world now the presence of God was not to be found in some distant temple, but in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's where the mercy of God can be found. He is where the divine forgiveness can be located for all people. as Jesus is quoted and saying in Mark 14:58. He says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. What's he talking about? It took him decades to build the temple. He's saying, I'm going to bring about a new temple. He's referring to his resurrection body, the new temple, where the presence of mercy was to be found for all nations, for all people, no matter who they were or what they had done. No matter which demonic gods and goddesses they had sacrificed to, no matter which modern gods of money, sex, and power that you've sacrificed to, it doesn't matter how dirty you might feel. All people from any sin ridden background can find God now in Him. Not a building, not stones. Not an altar, a living, breathing, talking, divine person who says in words and in emotion, I love you. God forgives you of all your sins. Welcome into his kingdom. Our sin is much, but as the lyric says, his mercy is more. 2 Corinthians 5.19 reads this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I see father pulling children in. Embrace-like language. In Christ, so Jesus, who we're reading about, it says God, over all of reality, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them. And entrusting to us, that's the church, the message of reconciliation. I love that word, not counting their sins against them. Therefore, don't count yourself out with God. Your sins have been decisively dealt with on the tree at Calvary. The earthquake shook. The curtain was torn. The temple was later destroyed, not needed. Friends, there's no mistake That you can make that can reverse what Jesus has already done for you. It's final. It's finished. The water depth of Christ's atoning blood for the universe. Is infinitely deep. It does not end. No sin can dry it up. None of your backsliding can quench the forgiving blood of Jesus Christ you see Jesus the new temple doesn't have an altar inside of it for any more sin sacrifices he's the new temple old one destroyed the altar by the Holy of Holies gone there's no new altar it's altarless there's no more need for sin sacrifices it's finished and so stop Counting yourself out when God in Christ counts you in. Can I be real with you? Don't steal God's glory with your personal shame. Stop holding yourself hostage through the mistakes that you make. Jesus has set the prisoners free by that one sacrifice. That's how totalizing complete and coherent it was we could spend the rest of our time in this church till we die just meditating on the proficiency of the cross don't steal God's glory with your shame rather glorify him with your imperfect obedience remember this he did not save you Because you're sinless. He saved you because you're full of sin. Get over your pride. I'm preaching to myself. I love to be spiritually perfect. I'm paid to be perfect. Or so we think. That's the thing I got to lay down before the Lord. He saved us. He loved us in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8. You want to remember one verse in the entire Bible. Remember this one. It's like a Mexican restaurant with that mint. You've heard this before. You put it away. You forget it's in your jean pocket. Two days later, you put, oh gosh, I needed this mint. That's scripture memorization. Am I getting off key here? Maybe a little bit. Remember this verse. It'll keep you in the Lord's presence. It won't put you in time out. It says this. God showed his love for us. That while we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. His love. Is what saved you. Not your perfect obedience. Paul goes on. He says. In the next verse. In that 2nd Corinthians 5. He says. This is where we'll end. He says. Therefore. We, this is you church, this is me, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're those ambassadors. Did you know you're an ambassador? Not to the United Nations, but to the United Church. You're an ambassador. And you're armed with a loving message that says, God wants you. He's died for you. Be reconciled to him. And so, here's the takeaway, friends. May we never in the church create new walls of separation from unbelievers with politics or race or social status or your legalism. Don't create new Gentile courts of division that the Lord has destroyed. May we be Christ-like people, creating no divisiveness or division in our own house of faith right here in His church. Watch your tongue. Make sure it creates more unity, not more walls amongst us. And let us always embrace whoever comes through those doors as Christ would embrace them. Because in Christ is found the infinite mercy, compassion, and love of Almighty God. He is the new temple. None can compare to his forgiving love. Amen.